Welcome to Antimatterpod, a Star Trek podcast where we discuss fashion, feminism, subtext and subspace, hosted by Annika and Liz. Today, we're discussing the original series episode, Journey to Babel. Yay. Uh, we invited our Twitter followers to vote for which episode we watched, and uh, this was a clear winner. Mm-hmm. We first uh, requested suggestions, Yes. and we got about eight, and then we narrowed it down to four. We cut out the ones that we'd seen a lot and uh, were sort of the big big ticket episodes of the original series and went for the slightly lesser known ones. And Journey to Babel. And Journey to Babel. <laughs> like you, because you can't pretend this is not a big ticket episode. Sure. You know, we were like, oh, maybe we should just choose this one because <laughs> it's probably what people want. But, but we let people decide and... They, they chose it. <laughs> well, I was open to watching the other ones that we narrowed it down to. Like, I have only seen Miri a couple of times. I've ha- only seen I, For I Have Touched the World and It Was Hollow a couple of times. For the world is hollow and I have touched See? the sky. See? I don't even know the title. I, I know that title because I, I wrote a song about it. Right. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> like you do. Yes. I mean, come on. That is clearly a supposed to be a song title. Yes. <laughs> a hippie 60s Wait, Who cares song. what the episode is actually about? I remember... The title is what's It's important. a McCoy romance, right? It is. Yes, yes it is a, a... McCoy is a... thinks he's dying, and so he has a, a... He, like, leaves Starfleet to marry a princess or something. Mm, seems fair. You know. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty normal coping mechanism... For a guy in an organization that already blew up its only mental health professional. Oops. And then uh, a piece of the action was oh, the yes. second place. It was the runner-up. That's that one. That one. Once in once in a while was uh, was neck and neck with Journey to Babel. But well, I'm very glad so. Journey Journey to Babel won. But uh, I wouldn't have minded that either. That's the gangster episode, right? It is. Yeah, yes, that's a good time. Chicago. Oh yeah. <laughs> For context to that remark, I am visiting the U.S., specifically the Midwest, Chicago and Detroit, late in 2019, early in 2020. So that's going to be great. Uh, probably going to disrupt our recording schedule somewhat. And I've already re- warned my friends that if any Star Trek is airing at the time, I will get a CBS All Access subscription and I will ditch them. <laughs> It'll be cold for you. I bought a vast blanket-like down puffer coat yesterday. and You will need that. Oh, yeah. And I have a good lined hat, and I'm just going to be hitting Uniqlo every time I get paid and buying more and more thermal underwear. Chicago in winter is not a warm place. (laughs) So I understand. So that's going to be great. But I've been to Chicago before and I really liked it and I'm really eager to see Detroit. My best friend is getting married there. So it's going to be great. So I'm sitting watching Journey to Babel going, hmm, Sarek drama. Oh gosh, he's the worst. I wonder what colour dress I should get. <laughs> well, I spent, I, I watched the, the episode and then I watched like six hours of ER. Wow. So- It was like I was there with you. (laughs) I was going to say one of the episodes we decided not to put on the poll was, uh, oh, you know, Joan Collins, City on the Edge of Forever. Yes. (laughs) 
Because it would be too painful. Yeah, it was a great episode, but I just wasn't up for anything that deals with the question of pacism, pacifism against Nazis. Nope. <laughs> just, just not just not the right time for that. Edith Keeler is James Kirk's problematic fave. <laughs> All right, so <laughs> let's get to the episode. Woohoo. Okay. Should, should we? I mean, I feel like probably people know what this episode is but we should should we give like a basic plot rundown here okay so the enterprise is ubering a whole pile of various diplomats uh to a planet called babel where they're going to debate the entry of a world called corridon to the federation and corridon is super rich in dilithium but also underpopulated which means that it's very vulnerable to illegal mining operations and piracy and I don't think the Federation really cares about the Corridan people. They just want that sweet, sweet dilithium. No. I don't even think we see a Corridan representative. No. <laughs> They're all going there. Yeah. They're a bunch of well-dressed random diplomats. Yes. We've got a Tellarite, an Andorian, Sarek representing Vulcan. And though it's never actually said that these are all Federation diplomats, it seems solidly yeah. canon by now that they're all representatives of their individual Federation worlds. And there's a bunch of random background aliens that we don't even hear what they are. No, so no. They're just random, random background aliens. The camera... But they're fun. camera lingers for a very, very long time on two... Uh, I think the proper term now is little people who are painted gold yeah. and sort of helping themselves to the buffet. And it's actually kind of uncomfortable to watch. And there are two Asian men further in the background. And it's like, are they aliens or are they just not white? I have questions. It's, it's, it's a little, it's a little. Um, it's the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> it's very the 60s. <laughs> But the important thing while all this is going on is that the Vulcan ambassador turns out to be da, 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 Spock's dad and his mum. <laughs> Can I just say, like, it's a really cute moment when Spock reveals that they're his parents. I know. But it's also ridiculous. Like, if I was the captain or the chief medical officer of a starship... Like, the first thing I would do when I got on the ship or, like, learned that I was going to be on the ship is read the personnel files of, like, everyone else on the ship. Not only that, but surely... And I'm pretty sure that, like, parents would be involved in that. And Sarek is a public figure, and surely there cannot yeah. be that many Vulcan men married to human women. So statistically, yeah. if you meet a couple with that dynamic, you can... Like, it seems like it should be a safe assumption that they're Spock's parents. It's just really weird. It's just like, you know, how can you not know that? And Kirk and, and is his like good friend at this point. They were both invited to his wedding. Like, it was just sort of like, this is silly. This is why Discovery Cute, did not have silly. to tell us why Spock never mentioned his sister Michael. Because Spock, <laughs> I assume, has hacked into his own personnel file and deleted or redacted anything about his parents. And... Just doesn't talk about his family. I I don't fully believe this in this episode. <laughs> like I have I have more I have more parts where I'm like Starfleet, what are you doing? Like this is ridiculous. On the one hand, I think so, it's, it's yeah, obviously written in the '60s, and we didn't have the ubiquity of Google and the ability to look people up the way we do now. And I think I assume that sort of information would have been in someone's file even then in the American military, but I'm not sure. Yeah, and maybe. Kirk and McCoy were just respecting Spock's privacy. 
I mean, what, McCoy respects no one's privacy, like, ever. No, that's, that's a ridiculous so, theory. So, that seems, it seems really <laughs> unlikely. My headcanon is that the Federation allows people to redact information about their parents if they're estranged or if there's some other level of complication that they just don't want to get into. So on the one hand, you have people like Tom Paris who will tell you all about their daddy issues the first time you meet them. And then you have Spock who keeps them close. And Spock's just ticks the box that said redact that. I do like your, your suggestion that Spock, who is like a computer genius, mm. hacked in and, 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 and deleted or changed his files. Like, I, I, I like that headcanon, that Spock was like that petty. Yeah. yeah. He was just like, I am going to, you know, just erase every mention. Uh, maybe he leaves his mom, but his dad. Yeah. No. Well, the other dimension <laughs> of my headcanon is that he's so angry that uh, Sarek goes along with the never speaking of Michael again thing that he's like, fine, I will never speak of you again. Goodbye. I. Uh- it was Spock's idea. Oh, so. god damn it, I forgot. <laughs> I, I, like, we don't need to get into how much I hate the end of Discovery. Okay. Again. But yeah. Spock felt so guilty about that, having that idea. Okay. <laughs> there, that one, I'll, that yeah. one I'll believe. Yeah. Guilt is a human emotion, and nevertheless, he is feeling it quite a lot, as he should. So anyway, we've only reached before the credit <laughs> sequence, and uh, I interrupted your, your flat rundown. Sorry. Oh. I, I, I think, you know, anything, this whole episode is about the plot being interrupted by Sarek family drama. That's true. That's true. That's exactly what happens over and over. So we cut to a nice diplomatic party and the Tellerite picks a fight with Sarek because he wants to know how Sarek will be voting. And Sarek is really racist about the Tellerites and he's like, Tellerites don't argue for a reason. They just enjoy it. And it's like, dude, come on. You're meant to be a diplomat, but... Bad at ambassadoring. Yes. And Amanda is delighted to learn that Spock has friends and immediately tells McCoy about his childhood pet. And can I just say, DeForest Kelly's face and the way that his whole expression lights up when he learns about Spock's teddy bear, which is, you know, six foot tall and has fangs. That's just such a wonderful piece of acting. And it's so unabashed delight. Mockery, because everything McCoy does is on some level about mocking Spock, but he's also very sincerely amused and pleased. Yeah, there's a there's a little bit of like, oh, Spock was a child once, you know, how sweet by human standards. Well, yes, yes. So, but matters are complicated when the Tellarite ambassador turns up murdered and his neck has been broken in a sort of weirdly logical way which only a Vulcan could do. Only a Vulcan. Tal Shia. Which something like that. I like to think is from the same has the same root as Tal Shia, the Romulan spy agency. In theory. I mean that would make sense. Mm. Sarek <laughs> is the number one suspect, but it turns out the reason he didn't have an doesn't have an alibi is that he was busy having a heart attack. Because Sarek <laughs> who is about to retire after this mission, is dying. He has a horrible heart condition that he's told no one about. Not even Amanda. It's so Sarek that his alibi is, oops, I was having a heart attack. Like, I can't, I can't prove that. 
except I'm going to die in a few hours. <laughs> Maybe that will prove it. So, on the one hand, we have this dangerous medical uh, procedure which requires Spock to be on hand to offer a blood transfusion to his father. Oh, emotion. Not logical at all. And on the other hand, the ship is being followed by a stealth ship. It's called the Intruder Ship, which I found very strange. But (laughs) that ship is sending secret messages to someone on the Enterprise and Kirk is attacked by a Tellarite and stabbed and injured very bad. An Andorian. Oh, racist. (laughs) An Andorian. (laughs) But he he like gets one of his antenna off. It's very exciting. That that doesn't happen yet. That happens towards the end. Oh, that doesn't happen yet. Sorry. But first we have to incapacitate Kirk so that he can't command, which means that Spock's like, well, now I'm in command and I'm not taking time off to look after my dad I have to command the ship I can't just turn it over to Scotty which by the way I think is very reasonable (laughs) you don't want Scotty in charge I will say that Scotty in charge of like a battle situation does sound like a terrible idea yeah and we can get onto that as once we're finished recapping but Amanda has a go at him and basically tries to emotionally blackmail him into helping his father uh Spock obviously not Scotty and slaps him and uh Kirk recovers i'm sorry if i'd realized i'd be recapping i would have taken notes kirk recovers just enough (laughs) to convince spock that he's fine take command and then spock goes down to start the procedure and the plan was that kirk would immediately turn command over to scotty and retire to his quarters to rest but then the the intruder ship attacks and kirk basically feels the way we do about putting scotty in charge of a battle situation and stays on the bridge. And it, at the same time, it comes out that the Andorian is a fake. And he has a transmitter in his antenna, which I think is incredibly clever. <laughs> the whole thing turns out to be an operation by the Orions to... Steal the Dilithium. Destabilise the Babel Talks so they can keep on stealing Corridon Dilithium and sell it to both sides. It's very, it's very Orion. It is, and I'm sad we never get to see more of these sorts of Orion shenanigans because I think they would have been great for smaller scale stuff than the Klingons. Yeah. And uh, the episode ends with uh, Sarek and Spock bonding by making fun of Amanda for being an emotional human female. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that is how it ends, yes. Pretty much. And, and McCoy's shushing everyone. Oh, yes, McCoy is delighted to have everyone basically as a patient under his command and shutting them all up, and it's his best day ever. (laughs) So, yeah. In my head, this is always just the diplomatic reception scene, so I'm always, like, (laughs) recapping, I was thinking... surprised that there's other stuff. Yeah! I was thinking, gosh, there's a lot (laughs) happening in this episode. It's really quite dense with plot. It's amusing to me. And, you know, when I'm just watching it like, like that, yeah, I only pay attention to certain aspects. But when I was watching it with like a, a quote unquote critical mm. eye that, OK, I'm going to talk about this. It's it's interesting that there are two scenes sort of back to back where uh, Spock is trying to convince Amanda and McCoy to let him give blood mm. and be involved in this risky operation. Like that's the entire scene is. Amanda and McCoy saying no no you can't and Spock saying no this is the only way and then literally the next scene is like Spock saying oh I can't do this and McCoy and Amanda both like no you have to do this this is the only way it's gonna work it's like this really weird role reversal because of the the Kirk issue 
Yeah. It just it amuses me that they turn so quickly. Like all three of them are like, nope, now we're now we're gonna be completely opposite to the opinion we were just at. Well the difference is like the, the risk to Spock has been negated. At at the point where it looks like Amanda would lose Spock to potentially save Sarek, obviously that's not a risk that she can take and McCoy can't ethically do that. But I also think Spock is reasonable in thinking that even after he's found a way around the medical danger, it would not be right of him to leave command for this purely personal concern. When Kirk is injured and on the bridge, he doesn't turn command over to Scotty either. Oh no. I don't think we're supposed to think that Spock is in the wrong, necessarily. He's... I, I guess because Amanda disagrees with him and I usually agree with Amanda on all things. So it was a bit a bit of a head spin to think, gosh, maybe Amanda is wrong. But I think that is, you know, she's written as a very emotional 60s sort of female character. I mean, I think it's supposed to be that we are sympathetic to both sides. Yeah. And, and in being sympathetic to both sides, because Amanda specifically says to Spock, you know, stop being such a Vulcan about this. And so I think we're supposed to, like, Spock's side is the very logical Vulcan side and Amanda's side is the very emotional human side. And so the episode forces us to think about things the way that Spock always has to think Mm. about things. Both sides are correct. No, I, I think that's a good point. He has to make a choice between them. And I feel like it would have been easier for Amanda if Spock had been able to say, this is really hard for me, but this is, I believe I'm doing the right thing. Like just that acknowledgement of some emotion would have helped. Having said that, like the level of emotional blackmail that she uses is really shocking to me watching now. And especially after Discovery where she's much more, she's more flawed, but also more sympathetic. Yeah. I, I mean, when she straight up says like, I will never speak to you again Mm. (laughs) if you do this. It's like, wow. I think that, if we're gonna, if we're gonna go and, and yeah, uh, post-discovery, this takes on, this whole situation takes on a new, a new spin. When Amanda says, you know, you haven't come to visit for four years. Which means that he has seen her in the time between, his yeah. es- between now and his estrangement from Sarek. I think that, as you said, you know, with the, you know, jokingly about Spock's guilt over the whole situation, but I think that that probably, it does put a strain on, like, on an already strained relationship mm. between him and his parents. Then the whole Michael thing and the fact that they, they can't speak of her outside of their family union it must be so hard to speak of her inside of their family unit. Because they barely speak at all. Right. Yeah. Like, it's got to be so hard. And of course Amanda is overwrought and distressed because she's lost her daughter and now she's potentially going to lose her husband and possibly through the inaction of her son. I understand where she's coming from. I just don't like how she dealt with it. Which, oh no, Amanda is flawed. We should be used to that. We should be happy. I know, I know. Why am I complaining? <laughs> I also, I mean, Sarah and Amanda are so cute. I know. Like, they're, they're so cute. In the one scene where they're arguing over if he's proud of Spock or not. 
is so adorable. They're like touching hands <laughs> constantly. And if Amanda yeah. isn't wearing gloves, it's like, my God, you guys, stop. That's very intimate for such public places. <laughs> I feel like, like they know that of everybody on the Enterprise, probably only Spock knows what's going on with the with the fingers. <laughs> and so, like, so they're just like, we can get away with this. Oh, yeah. We're going to hold hands in public. Although, like, this is another thing that I have. Another issue I have with Starfleet is how hesitant McCoy is about operating on a Vulcan. I know. I really feel like this should be a big a big <laughs> thing. A big part of Starfleet Medical should be operating on aliens because there are more than humans in Starfleet. Like they say in this episode that there are more Vulcans than Spock on this ship. Well, I think that's because Sarek brings a whole entourage on board. But yeah, McCoy's ignorance about Vulcan physiology is deeply troubling. It's really disturbing to me. I really feel like he should at least have a unit on. Like, he says that, well, I've read them, but I've never done anything. <laughs> it's like, why not? Like, I feel like this should be part of Starfleet medical training is operating or at least like doing an autopsy right. on various alien species that you are likely to see. And the ones that you are likely to see are the ones that are like the other founding aliens of the Federation. Right, like at this point, we've had Vulcans living on Earth for roughly 200 years. And yes, we're a very private people, but come on! Surely some Vulcan out there was like, well, I'm on Earth and I'm dying and this is going to be difficult for my family, but I think it would be logical to donate my body to human science. Also, mm. all of this said... Sarek also should have brought along a doctor. <laughs> he is the ambassador of Vulcan. He has his entourage. He could have brought his personal physician or someone who has his blood type. I'm just going to go crazy here. But what if he told his wife that he was having serious health problems? What? I know. That would just I be know. crazy. What am I thinking? <laughs> I, I, poor Amanda. Like, how sad is it that this long into the relationship, he's just not, he still is protecting her, her terrible human emotions. Oh, like, I know. Oh, we don't want my, my, my wife to fly off into, you know, have, hu have human feelings about me maybe dying. Like, it's just, just stop. Just stop. Stop, Sarek. Stop. Yeah. I feel like part of the tragedy of Sarek is always that he doesn't learn. But come on! <laughs> he definitely never learns. Uh, I, although, I will, that's, that's not true, because in the Next Generation episode with Sarek, mm. his wife totally knows that he's dying. That's very true. Like she knows about that, that sickness. Yes, in fact, she's part of the conspiracy to keep it from him. Yeah. Oh, we've come full circle. So, ooh. <laughs> so I guess maybe. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Sarek, Sarek is really very Sarek-y all the time. It's also possible that given the difference between a human and a Vulcan lifespan, he just never thought that Amanda would outlive him. So it just never occurred to him to think about how to communicate with her about his health. I guess. 
It seems it just seems sort of it seems illogical. Yeah. If if he if he's had heart attacks mm. like you know, I, even if he's sort of like resigned to the fact that he has some sort of disease, he should still like if he wants to complete this mission, like someone yes. someone in his entourage should know something about this. And like, I don't care who it is. He's taking, he's taking medication. We see him washing a pill down with sorry and brandy of all things. Sarek, I don't think that is following doctor's instructions. I don't know much about Vulcan medicine, but I'm just going to guess. <laughs> oh, Vulcans. I love them and they're so terrible. Yeah. I love when, when, when Kirk says... You know, uh, a man is like, well, let's let's uh, let's continue on our tour, whatever, and and I forget what what it says, but uh, he says something like, uh, that sounded more like a command than a suggestion, mm-hmm. and she says, of course, he's a Vulcan, and I'm his wife. And I was just like, gross. I just have so- chosen to. De- interpret that scene differently i think sarek is like i want to go off and have a logic sulk and i know amanda wants to continue the tour so to ensure she doesn't feel compelled to to come with me and manage my secret emotions i'm going to order the captain to continue the tour for her because i know she'll enjoy that and so when she says he's a vulcan and i'm his wife she's saying he was being he was sneakily commanding you and because he loves me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Like that's a, that's a fun read. I, I'm quite sure that's not what was intended, but I'm just going to go with it. <laughs> I like, I like it as a, a re working of a scene that maybe they didn't think was problematic in 1968. Yeah. And I think anytime you're watching something as old as this, if it's still a living canon, then you're going to have to do some sort of retconning to make it yeah, palatable. Yeah, because I just, like, I don't like when Amanda buys into the Vulcan patriarchy. Yeah. You're better than that, Amanda. Have some self-respect. <laughs> no, that is absolutely how I feel. And I think part of the problem <laughs> is that a lot of the time we interpret Vulcan culture or a significant chunk of fandom and I don't want to say entirely male but there are a lot of men in fandom who do this unquestioningly interpret Vulcan culture as superior and along the way you know uh, women of warp have discussed how a lot of the really sexist lines in the original series were actually put in Spock's mouth because logic and refuted by Kirk but a lot of people seem to swallow them unquestioningly and so it's really hard when Amanda buys into it too, even though I think we're meant to be questioning it. Did that make any sense? It did. And I like that um, you're sticking up for Jim Kirk, A-plus feminist. <laughs> because he has a bad rap. I... And, uh, I mean, obviously, this is, this is a, you know, a generalization either way. Yes. There are plenty of things that are wrong with with Captain Kirk. However, the idea that he is just a shoot 'em up womanizer is really like not correct. No. Um, 
it's also really watch it it's also not correct to say that he was this amazing feminist and i have a real trouble i have real trouble assigning that label to any character played by william shatner and i freely admit that's my issues with the actor not the characters yeah but i do think that for the time he was designed to be a very advanced type of enlightened man he's more progressive than his environment Yes, yes. But his environment is the 1960s patriarchy. But so, so it's not hard. But then you do consider some of the lines they give Spock. Yeah, and I mean, and I think that I, I think that it started out with just sexism mm. and um, and conservatism. But I, you know, we're gonna talk about uh, Enterprise next time and there's a I think I have a lot to say about the Vulcans in Enterprise oh yeah and how I feel like they start to play with these ideas and I'm not sure they know they're doing it you know a lot of the time watching Enterprise I was like this is really interesting and I don't think this is what you intended but okay and then other times it was like I think you think you're telling a really progressive story and you're not (laughs) anyway spoilers next week or next episode Anyway, in in this uh, episode, it's cute how Kirk actually really wants to like fix mm. the Sarek family. He's like, "Oh, there's some there's some friction here. I am totally on this. I can <laughs> I can you know I can parent trap my way into fixing this, guys. I got this." Like he he brings Spock along, even though like Sarek totally asked for Spock to not <laughs> be involved in the tour. And then he like tries to, you know, he tries to get Spock to explain talk to his parents. Yeah, you know, he's like, "I'm gonna trick you into talking to to your parents," and they that doesn't work out. And he's like, "Okay, that you know, I haven't given up." And he like in in all of the scenes, Kirk is meddling behind the scenes in a very like Janeway kind of way yes. <laughs> to try to fix whatever is wrong. Like he doesn't even know what it is, but he's just like. I, I can't stand that. Like, he, he, after, you know, Sarek is sick, he goes up to Spock and he's like, I'm really sorry about your father. And and uh, Spock's having none of it. You know, he doesn't even want to acknowledge that it is affecting him in any way. And Kirk gets, gets this little, like, puppy dog. Mm. Like, you kicked, you kicked my, my heart. <laughs> like, he just looks so sad that Spock can't express that he is sad. Like, Kirk is like, no, I know that you're actually upset by this. And I, he's, like, upset that he can't... That Spock, even in this, like, private moment between the two of them, he can't express it. Mm. And I just think it's really sweet. Like, Kirk is actually really cute in this episode. But also, when the, the dead Tellerite is found, Spock is the first person to throw his dad under the bus. And Spock is like... Oh yeah, obviously this was done by a Vulcan, and every time this comes up, um, Kirk and McCoy sort of glance at him like, "Dude, are you <laughs> not even a little bit troubled by this?" I like that. That yeah, like not only does he is he like it, it's it's totally a Vulcan, and then and Kirk is like, you know. Would your father have done this? And he's like, well, if Hell you have yeah. a logical reason to do it, he's definitely deadly. <laughs> Just like, wow, Spock. Like, he straight up said that Sarek is probably a murderer. 
I like, know. Not even just this one time. Like he probably has like a string of bodies behind him. I know. I know. It's great. It's a fantastic characterization for Spock. It raises more questions about Sarek and Kirk and McCoy are looking at each other like <laughs> this family dynamic is weirder than we realized. They might even be a little scared of Spock. They're like, oh, if if that's who raised him, maybe we're in trouble here. And then when they turn up in Sarek and Amanda's quarters to question Sarek, even Amanda's not, they, there's no surprise or outrage that they're turning to Sarek. She's just like, well, I'm not happy about it, but okay. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit weird. We know that Sarek was an astrophysicist before he was an ambassador, but could it be that he had another alliterative job and before that he was an assassin? Oh, I like this idea. Yeah. <laughs> Secret assassin Sarek. Like we know from Enterprise that the Vulcan intelligence service was uh, yeah. hella sketchy. And they like to have, you know, to brainwash young people <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and then set them off. To do something else afterwards. This is this is why Sarek was like, oh, hey, Emperor Georgiou, you're a person I can do business with. Yes, good. <laughs> oh, see, we're just like adding more and more to Sarek's amazing backstory. It's amazing because James Frain really doesn't look anything like Mark Lennard and they don't really play Sarek in the same way, but he feels like a consistent character. Yeah, really the only time that, um, in this episode, again, in that one scene where they're talking about Spock, and at the very end, they touch fingers, and, and he just looks at Amanda mm. with this sort of, like, begrudging smile, and that was the only moment where I was reminded of, of James Frayne's portrayal. Mm. And I think Frayne is great. I think he does... Oh, no, I, th I, I love... I love them. Mm. I, I think they are both really good performances, and I don't e like. I don't need them to look alike or or act alike or have, because I agree with you that it that it comes off as the same character just because of I guess characterization mm. or, or a through line of how terrible and wonderful. <laughs> is. But yeah, I I was struck watching this thinking if it was 1967 and you're watching this for the very first time and you didn't know anything about this episode or Sarek, you might really think he was the villain. Like, <laughs> he is really set yeah, up to seem like the bad actual guy. Actual murderer. Yeah. <laughs> the, the oops, Spock's dad is a murderer. The episode. Do we know that the Andorian or the Orion spy disguised as an Andorian really killed the Tellarite? I guess not. I'm just saying. <laughs> was Sarek really cleared? I guess he, he had his heart attack alibi, but still. <laughs> I do. I also like when, you know, Sarek sort of finally relents and tells the Tellarite what Yes. He plans to do and like exp expresses why he's voting for them to join the Federation. It was very Vulcan patriarchy, and mm. they're like, "We're going to take them under our wing and and tell them how correctly to mine their dilithium and give it to the right people." It's just like, "Oh, how nice of you!" And we're also going to like populate their their planet 
with who knows what but sure like it, it, it was just it was very like it was just like when they found humans they're like oh hello humans but like, you you figured out how to get off this planet well let me show you what you can do with that power yes yes exactly and it made me wonder how much of the federation's uh sort of implicit imperialism comes from the vulcans because from obviously vulcans, yeah that's a human thing as well and you know the the Andorians are totally they literally have an imperial guard so you know the whole utopian experiment of the federation it was, was conceived by these incredibly flawed cultures which is great you know I love that about it but I also love its imperfections and how Sarek is just like yeah we're just gonna paternalistically show them the way it's like, we're going to be good shepherds for them. It's going to yeah. be great. You compared that to the Vulcans in Enterprise. And Journey to Babel is the foundation for so much world building throughout Star, excuse me, throughout Star Trek, but Enterprise specifically. You know, we yeah, barely, s- barely see the Andorians or Tellarites again until Enterprise. Right. Which is a shame. I want to know more. I mean, I don't really care. I'll be honest. I don't really care about the Tellarites. They don't seem to be that interesting. (laughs) I feel like... I mean, they don't get anything to do, so... They just have the worst makeup in the whole of the original series. Yeah. And I liked the... And ridiculous clothes. Yes. And I liked the redesign for Enterprise, and I liked the redesign again for Discovery. Discovery. But I feel like we don't know anything about them, save that they are argumentative and look like dogs i think i thought they would look like pigs and i think that that you know the fact that they're not pretty in any way Mm. is is you know i'm sorry (laughs) but i have this same problem with uh in lord of the rings i really only care about the elves (laughs) like them and then the humans but the hobbits Um, have such lovely curly hair on their heads and their feet the, I, I can deal with the hobbits and the dwarves, but I just don't mm. ha, I like I just don't care about them. They're not as interesting to me as the like the and the, again the elves like the Vulcans are terrible. Ah uh, yeah, yeah. But <laughs> but I'm more interested in them. I'm more interested in that culture. And I feel like the poor Tellarites, <laughs> I have the same block and like I admit that it's a it's a flaw of mine that, that I can't get behind caring too much about the Tellarites because they're not, I mean, they don't seem to, they don't come off as intelligent, interesting. They have like four lines. So yeah. it's not like Star Trek also has not sold them to me. I have never gotten to know a Tellarite character very well. No. And particularly in I like, this episode, you can't see their eyes. Like, the, yeah, I, you can see the actor's eyes moving behind the mask, but it looks like a mask. And so I'm sure that if Discovery gave us an interesting Tellarite character, I would yeah. love them. And look how right. fandom has has uh, glommed onto Linus the Saurian. But so far, they've yeah. only been used as plot devices in Enterprise and Discovery. Right. And the and the Andorians got a lot more in Enterprise. Yeah. They got to do. They got you know mainstay characters. So I was struck they by come across more. Sorry. No, it's okay. Um, but I, I just want to say something about the Andorians uh, mm-hmm. uh, while I'm in the aesthetics. I love that they have, like, cotton balls on their head. 
<laughs> it just makes me really, really happy. Like, like their hair. I just, yes, their hair. I, you know, it's, I, I watched it, they remastered, you know, in my big wide TV and like everything, every flaw. Oh, I know. Is, is very, very visible. And I just love that they were like, we got to make some aliens. And so we're going to put like actual like fluffy cotton stuff <laughs> on these aliens in these little pointy you know, wig type deals. It's I just love it. I love the Andorians, how they look in this episode. It just makes me so happy. They look it like I kind of I want to touch their hair. I just want to like reach into the television and and poke at it. It's cheap. It's, it's cheap, but it's such it's good cheap. makeup. Yeah, it's exactly. It's like I know exactly how they made it, mm. and I, I admire it. Yes. <laughs> so, like, whereas the Tellarites just don't like they're they don't I don't want to look at them. I just I just don't want to look at them. No, it's it's embarrassing how bad their makeup is. Uh, what what I loved about the Teller um, not the Tellarites the Andorians is how they seem like a fully fledged people, even though we actually only interact with one real Andorian. But the ambassador's whole manner. Even though he's speaking in a slight, vaguely racist, slightly Asian accent, his manner and his body language is remarkably similar to that that Jeffrey Combs uses as Shran in Enterprise. Yeah, do you think he like watched it and tried to? Absolutely. To get that. I, I can imagine. He's the type of actor who I think would do that. Yeah, and like we and... were saying, this episode is so foundational for Enterprise that. It, it wouldn't shock me if they just handed a VHS copy to everyone yeah. and said, watch this, it's great. <laughs> this is important. Mm. But also it sets a template for a lot of next-gen episodes too. You know, how many times are they shuttling ambassadors and there's some kind of awkward reception in 10 forward and someone starts a fight and, you know, this and, is... And the Starfleet people don't want to do it. Yeah, <laughs> like... yeah, because they hate their dress uniforms. Which... <laughs> I mean, in next generation, it makes a little bit more sense because their dress uniforms are kind of ridiculous. Oh yeah, these are. These, I mean, I guess maybe they're scratchy around their neck or something, but these seem to be basically the same uniform, just with some shiny brocade <laughs> attached. So it's it doesn't seem that different to me as a uniform. I thought the regular uniforms were made of something like velour, and this looked shiny. But yeah, I think I think McCoy's complaint is about the scratchy neck. Yeah, okay. Um, and also just that they have to be standing at it, you know, standing mm. up straight and, and caring about whatever they're talking about. I feel like I would, like, that's the job I want. Yeah. In, in the Federation is to, to hang out with all of the alien ambassadors and learn about all their different cultures and do all that stuff mm. like that and, and be there for the... For the, you know, trial for is is this planet going to get into yeah. the Federation? That sounds super interesting. Like, I am very into that. And I'm sad that the episode ends before we get there. Yeah. It's just the journey. It's not the destination. We don't even get to see Babel. Nope. I mean, we don't even get to see the intruder ship. Like, it's all very... It's, it's I just... I you know I love what they can do with their non-existent production values in this show. They decided to put all of their money this week into actors, costumes, and makeup, and then they ran out of yeah. money and had to do the Tellarites. 
but I think they overall they made the good the right choice. Yes, yeah. it's it's great. I I love I love that everything everyone is wearing in the party scene is amazing, especially Amanda. But Sarek is great. <laughs> the Tellarites are like their their fashion is is horrible but wonderful. Like they really look like they were you know someone stole jumpsuits off mm. of, like a Buck Rogers set. Yes, <laughs> yeah. And we're like, here, you guys wear this. And then, and then the Andorians look they like they were stolen off the Wizard of Oz set. Yeah, so. they all have that sort of vaguely, uh, sort of cheap medieval Halloween costume yeah. look. It's really, it's just, it's just so good. Whereas Sarek's costume, it's also very cheap, and this is another case where the remastered version on a high definition television Ooh, yeah. really lets it down because you can see how bad the seams are and how poorly it's cut. But I think that if you <laughs> If you took that pattern and made it using high quality material and the best possible um, sewing people, you know what I mean. Right. If, if it was made properly, I think that outfit would look totally sharp and not out of place on James Frayne's Sarek. Yeah. I think it would just be like using, instead of just like plain black and like what looked to me like two different color blacks for the top and the bottom like if they if they had like a a, a really high-end black fabric with definition like it could be amazing and then and then just to add his little medieval shield brocade mm. and, and whatever is on his arm it's it's sort of the same brocade, but uh, it's, it's yeah. like a band, but only on one arm. It's very cool. It's very cool. Sarek is, is definitely, I mean, he's my fashionista Vulcan. But, he uh, is. He's even, even in his cheap secondhand uh, outfit here, <laughs> he's, he's still my fashionista Vulcan. And Amanda's like tie-dye chiffon is just incredible. Amanda's three Amanda, outfits. Amanda has three outfits. They, that's where the entire budget went. And it was like, it's really important that Amanda is wearing a different thing in her first scene, her party scene. And then the it's sad that like her least interesting outfit is what she wears for for the majority. The, the, the feather boa house dress. Yeah. But it's also like she changes into this. Like she gets out of her party dress into this. I wonder. Like Sarah is still in his party outfit, but I feel like she was like, I need to relax. And so she's in her like relaxation dress. And then the rest of the episode, she's in emergency mode. So she doesn't have time mm. to change clothes. Like it made perfect sense, but it was just like, why are you still wearing this orange thing? It made me wonder if they were meant to be her pajamas because it looks a bit like a pajama set in a Doris Day movie. Yeah, I wrote down that too. I was like, so does Captain Kirk get to see Amanda in her pajamas? Is that what's happening right now? I feel like if your okay. pajamas involve a, a feather boa and high heels, then it's okay for people to see okay. you in them. <laughs> and trousers, which I thought was interesting given the era. That's the other thing that made me think pajamas. Yeah, I. It, it's like you don't even realize that it's pants mm. until 
toward the end of the episode and it's like oh whoa she's wearing pants I have seen this episode so many times and I've only just figured out yesterday that she's wearing pants yeah it's it's a it's a surprise toward the end there I wonder when she made the switch from her 2250s monochrome looks to her bright 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 wardrobe of the 2260s (laughs) well I mean Starfleet made that change too Mm, so So it's uh, it's clearly some kind of, it, it's, you know, the fashion era. I, I think, I know this is not your favourite episode of, Disco- of Discovery, but at the end of Magic to Make the Sanest Man Go Mad, when Stella Mudd turns up and suddenly she has this pop of colour and she's wearing pinks and oranges and her, you know bright pink leggings that look like they could be from the original series and I feel like Stella was very fashion forward and everyone else just followed in her footsteps I completely agree and Stella Mudd is easily my favorite part of that (laughs) all I want is more Stella Mudd like that's don't I don't I don't need to see Harry ever again but bring on Stella I would enjoy a short trick about Stella running her father's crime empire and Absolutely. Occasionally, when she's got nothing better to do, sending another assassin out for her no good husband. Yes. <laughs> do we think Giorgio decided to jump into the future with Discovery because she could see all the colour coming coming her way and was like, I, I don't, I can have no part of this. I don't know. I feel like even if everyone else wore all of the Technicolor, hmm. Giorgio would not. She'd be like, I'm good. I'm sticking with, sticking with my goth leathers, thanks. I agree, but I also think that sooner or later some Sarek-style brocade would start sneaking in. <laughs> Sarek-style brocade. What else do you call it? <laughs> no, I, I, it's, it's a perfect. It's a perfect. I, like, I can picture it in my head exactly what that is. <laughs> and, uh, and now I want someone to draw... Giorgio in Sarah style brocade and possibly go-go boots. Oh dear. <laughs> way back way back when Discovery first started, I think I tried to draw uh, Prime Giorgio and Michael infiltrating the Romulan Empire in the little uh, crochet style uh, mini dresses and yeah. knee-high boots. Really hard to draw. <laughs> Yeah, I love watching Star Trek in high definition on my big TV because I can see how the costumes are made and I can go, I'm not very good at sewing, but I could do that. And then you get something <laughs> like the, he- the feather boa house dress or even Amanda's party chiffon. And I go, I cannot like, do whoa. that. Nope. No. Her, her crazy feather boa house dress, like the top part, I can't tell if it's just sometimes it's bunching up on her mm. or if it's supposed to be two different levels of whatever <laughs> like I, I can't tell it's that strange and it the, whatever it does in the back like the the feather boas are like sleeves in yes! the front like they're cuffs in the front but in the back it's like it meets the middle and is somehow kind of cape thing and it's like what a, I it, that is a crazy outfit yes and and if it is her pajamas like she once again, is on Padme Amidala levels of ridiculous pajamas. It's funny you mentioned Padme because I was just thinking <laughs> that one of my favorite things about the Star Wars prequels is how they did high definition portraits of every single side character and put them online, and it's such a gift to cosplayers. Oh yeah. Why? Why did they not do that for us in the nineteen sixties? <laughs> yeah, 
we we have to take these screen caps and try to understand <laughs> how is this costume working <laughs> it doesn't seem to work at all i don't understand how amanda's travel veil integrates into her cloak <laughs> because she's veiled when she comes off the shuttle and then she takes she removes the veil and then we never see where it goes yeah it's it's like it it just sort of collapses <laughs> around her somehow and to think people were complaining about Discovery having like um, spacesuit helmets that retract into your into your spacesuit. Yeah, I mean, and also her hair is amazing. Like, like Amanda really puts herself together. She presents herself in a very specific way. I did once make an attempt to cosplay Amanda, and basically what I did was I sent a bunch of bunch of screen caps to my best friend, who is very immersed in sixties pop culture and 60s fashion and I said okay start with the hair how did they get the hair like this and she's like "Mm, looking at it I think it's two or three wigs (laughs) and then I changed my mind about cosplaying Amanda yeah it's I don't think you can cosplay anyone in the original series without at least one hair piece any of the women you know there was the tumblr post i shared the other day about that with the women who cosplayed at a con as uh, uh, kirk and spock's penises (laughs) that's why i changed it to any of the women (laughs) um but i don't think i want to know what they wore for that or how they explained it to people do you think maybe it was considered self-explanatory at the time i mean probably (laughs) anyway i don't know if i want to cut this digression or just include a very not safe for work link in the show notes i'm gonna leave that up to you yeah yeah i have a week to decide yep all right, cool. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. We have cool, plumbed cool. the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I, I think that I'm, as a cosplayer, mm-hmm. and as someone who likes to cosplay things that are a little bit off the beaten path. Yes. Uh, you know, I think that I approve of their ingenuity. Anyone, anyone can be Kirk and Spock, but... You know, take it to the next level. Well, apparently the woman who did the costumes went on to work for Barney, like the dinosaur. <laughs> How did you know? Like, <laughs> It said so what in the Tumblr post. <laughs> okay, mm. so Barney, the dinosaur, beloved by children. Uh-huh. <laughs> was costumed by someone who, as an amateur costumer, created and portrayed Kirk and or Spock's penis? Yeah. Okay, cool. Mm. I'm just, just, I, that is an amazing trivia. You definitely need to keep this in. Okay. I wonder what Lamb Chop was doing before she was Lamb Chop. <laughs> I... I, I'm going to not look that up ever. <laughs> like, because I don't need. <laughs> Sullied? Uh, 
Yeah, in this mm. way. Mm. I mean, I, Barney is one thing. I can totally believe that anyone behind Barney or like the Teletubbies. Oh, I can yeah. see. I get There's it. There's some weird shit it. happening there. But yeah, no. But uh, <laughs> Lamb Chop. But, but Lamb Chop is sweet. Yeah, it's like <laughs> Mr. Rogers. Like, I don't want them to be. Uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's keep them away. <laughs> uh, on that note, do you want to do the outro? <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad that we're really ending on a high note. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you for listening to Antimatter Pod. You can find our show notes at antimatterpod.tumblr.com, including links to our social media and credits for our theme music. And a link to the penis cosplay. <laughs> Which is very important. Well, you can't you bring can it also... up without sharing with the class. That's true. That's true. You can also follow us on Twitter at at antimatterpod. Sometimes we post cat pictures, cosplay pictures, <laughs> and questions for our audience. If you like us, leave an, an iTunes review. The more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to find us. And join us in two weeks for a discussion of the first two seasons of Enterprise. I can only imagine what cosplay will come out of that. <laughs> well, my main thought so far is that it's amazing how Ambassador Serval looks like Sarek. So, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we'll find a way to make fun of Sarek next week, too. We always find a way. That's why Journey of the Babel won. <laughs>